this was my Star Wars. This was the one that changed the game for me in terms of just watching movies as entertainment versus looking at them as an art form. watch episode four rob here find more episodes of this show on apple Podcasts, spotify and other podcatchers as well as crookedtable.com if you can give us a rating or review on apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it on this episode brian scuttle of sonic cinema podcast joins us to talk about the 1994 horror action thriller fantasy etc the crow starring the late Brandon Lee. Of course, this movie is well known for the tragic accident that claimed Lee's life on the set of the film. But of course, this film has sustained a cult following since its release, led to a TV series, several sequels, and yet nothing still compares to the original film. Why has The Crow managed to endure after so many years later? Let's dig into it and find out. Welcome to Close Watch, the show where we get to know our guests through the movies they love. This episode, I am honored to welcome Brian Scuttle to the show. Welcome, Brian. Thank you very much. So tell people a little bit about who you are, about Sonic Cinema, and everything you have going on. I'll I'll try to keep the introduction as quick as possible. I basically started started to uh, really fall in love with films as an art form in the mid-90s, and admittedly, this film that we're going to talk about is a big part of that. I, I noticed the uh, major paper in uh, town was uh, doing like a UB the Craig type section for, you know, fans to write in their thoughts. And I started to submit mini reviews for that. And I got I actually got quite a few of those published over the over a few years until they discontinued that. And then in college, I started writing reviews and in English class, I started writing I was able to write about movies and write about subjects about movies like the movie ranking system that really fascinated me. And that's kind of when I really started to go all in on really looking at films in film years on a regular basis and trying to get to as much as I could. In 1999, I started a movie review email list, which I still do but it's more in conjunction of sonic sima and i had that going for a few years before i launched sonic sima in 2004 it basically has been intended as a hub for my movie reviews movie blogs some fan commentaries that some friends of mine have done over the years which you can find there as well as my original music because i was a music major in college and my first interest was to be a film composer and to a certain extent i've still been interested in film music and film composing over the years but i've done a couple of short films but over time i uh, talking about movies and being having a critical eye towards movies basically became my first love and uh, sonic cinema is still going strong as a website and uh, a few years ago I began the Sonic Cinema podcast where I would talk about subjects that interested me, whether it was movies, whether it was genres. And, you know, I I also use it to talk about my music. And I've also had interviews with 
filmmakers, actors, and as well as other critics and friends to just get their voices as part of my uh, discussion on films as a whole. So that's that's basically where I'm at as far as uh, Sonic Cinema. Yeah, it's I think for me having a having a movie podcast is one of the biggest benefits has been just the, the network that you grow from it. Just like you yeah. you know you have you you have an and for lack of a better better for lack of a better term excuse to ask people, "Hey, you want to come and talk movies? I'll record yeah. it and put it out there." And you know, you bond over the things that you love. That's what is so much fun about about having these kinds of conversations and that's that's why it was such a thrill for me to be on your show on Sonic Cinema talking about parody movies which is a genre that has been in my life for one way or another for my whole life for whether it's Mel Brooks or Naked Gun or Austin Powers, like de- dealing into that was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I kind of have a theory that there's always one movie that hits you at a very formative age. That is what makes a cinephile a cinephile, or in our case, what makes us kind of dig deeper and write reviews and talk about these movies on podcasts. Was there a specific movie for you like that? For me, it was The Matrix, where I first started realizing, wait a minute, there's like an art behind all of this. I don't just watch right. it as you know a way to pass the time like I did as a kid. That's where it started. There's intentionality. There's like the whole. There's a multiple different forms of craft that go into making these things that we go spend our money and sit in the dark room to watch for two hours. So, was there a specific movie like that for you? And you know, if it's this movie we're going to talk about, then we'll get to that, I guess. Yeah, it is actually, so it is actually this movie. And I mentioned it earlier on Facebook when I was talking about being on this, being on the podcast tonight. Originally, at first, when we were talking about doing this, I was originally thinking, oh, I want to, you know, is there another movie that I can think of that I haven't really kind of talked to death about right. that would fit this? Because, I mean, you know, for most people, it was like Star Wars. But, you know, I was I was still a kid when Star Wars came out. I mean, I was five when Return of the Jedi hit theater. So it really didn't have that same formative experience for me that other people had with it of my generation, but the older side of that generation. And so I was trying to think of like other movies I could talk about. But really, the one that we're talking about, and I mean, I've written a lot about this. I've done a podcast about this i've done a i've done two podcasts about this i've done one podcast where it was just me talking about the evolution of a piece that i did that was inspired by this movie and the, another one that i guessed it on earlier this year where we were talking about favorite soundtracks and this is very much my favorite soundtrack of all time and honestly basically boiled down to you know what this is the formative this was my star wars really in a in a matter of speaking this was the one that changed the game for me in terms of just watching movies as an entertainment and looking the versus looking at them as an art form and uh, yeah we we can go ahead and get started i think so yeah we, we keyed it up nicely i wasn't sure if that transition <laughs> was going to pay off but boy did it so yeah so this episode we're going to be talking about alex proyas's kind of directorial debut we sort of touched on that pre-recording i guess his first major movie is fair to say yes uh, the crow from 1994 people once believed that when someone dies a crow carries their soul to the land of the dead but sometimes just sometimes Bring that soul back to put the wrong things right. 
So when we when we were talking about having you on the show, this is obviously one of the first ones you thought of as you kind of just walked us through your thought process. So what is it about this movie that, you know, why is why is it this film you wanted to talk about, especially since you've covered it on your on your own at length? Was there initially did you already feel like there was something you hadn't uncovered about it or was it just sort of another opportunity to to revisit some of those same thoughts? Well, it's actually funny because of the fact that I didn't I wasn't sure how much more that I haven't already rec- talked about in some way, shape or form that I could talk about with this movie with the crow. But the fact is, it's like rewatching it today and actually rewatching it. I rewatched it a couple of times. First time I watched it just straight up and that was great. And there were it was funny because there were things about the movie that I didn't necessarily think about until this time thinking, watching the movie. And then mm. and then I watched it again today. So I've watched it twice today. But the second time was with Alex Preuss's uh, commentary, which is on the Blu-ray. And I never heard Preuss's commentary before. I He had recorded one. It was a group one many years ago. But because of studio politics, we never got it. So this was the first commercially released commentary of his for The Crow. And it's funny because it was very informative. I mean, he talked a lot about the filmmaking process. He talked about some of the things uh, that happened in making the movie verse after um, Brantley passed away. And but he also touched on some of those same things that I noticed in this most recent clean rewatch of it and so it was really kind of interesting to feel like those thoughts had been validated by the director especially director whom i've really come to love over the years uh i look at each prize film as an event now uh so the reason this movie kind of connected with me as as an experience that really sort of changed the way i looked at films is because Honestly, up until this point, I had never really seen anything like it. Like, I hadn't really been into independent films yet. Most of my movie watching was dictated by, like, what my family wanted to watch. I mean, I was I was very introverted at the time. I had friends, but I didn't really hang out with them, or we didn't really go see movies and stuff like that. But this was one that I actually went to at... I didn't go see it right away. But from the time it came out to the time that I finally saw it, I did pick up the soundtrack and I absolutely adore the song soundtrack. It is fantastic. And we'll certainly get into that. But I I finally saw the movie at a discount theater near, it's like 15, 20 minutes away. And I'm like, I've got to see this movie. I wanted to see this movie. Part of the reason I was kind of hesitant to go alone, admittedly, was because of the fact that I kind of had that fear because I was not quite 17 yet. And so Mm. I kind of had that fear of, oh, if I go and I'm not 17, they're going to turn me away. And, you know, obviously, you know, as most people know, that's kind of BS, even though as (laughs) as as a movie theater manager, I certainly try to enforce as much as possible. So I went to go see it and it just absolutely from a visual standpoint, from a musical standpoint, it was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. 
And the I'd known this story about Branley past dying during the making of it. And certainly that informed a, some of my opinion, but I was obsessed with this movie afterwards. And so when finally, and that was actually the last day it was at the discount theater. So that, the one day I went to go see it was the last day it was in theaters around me. And oh, wow. so I had to wait about two months for the VHS to come out to watch it again. And I basically watched, read it as much as I could as soon as a previewed, pre previously viewed version went on sale, I bought it, and it be, basically became a it basically became a touchstone. It really did become my favorite film of all time for a long time. Well, I, I mean, lots to unpack there. Uh, <laughs> for one, for people younger people listening to this, it's it's insane that when we were kids, I'm I'm a little bit younger than you. I was born. I was actually born the year Return of the Jedi came out. Oh wow! Uh, so so that, there's that. So I didn't really Star Wars didn't really get to me until the special editions, the ones that right. everyone hates. I'm like, well, that I know that one more than the original. So, but yeah, that movies didn't weren't priced to own unless they were like a Disney film or an Independence Day or or a Mrs. Doubtfire, like a Shorefire, like one of the, yeah. the year's biggest hits. So you had to wait mm-hmm. until your local video store was ready to sell off its part of its inventory in order to own these movies on, on VHS, where now everything is direct to streaming or, yeah. or <laughs> at, the, at your fingertips. You had to wait a long time, which is why I mentioned Austin Powers already, which is why I rented that movie several times before I was actually owned it on VHS. But yeah, so you just you were just intrigued by the trailer. You didn't and you'd heard the Brandon Lee stories. You weren't familiar with the the comics by James O'Barr or anything like that, right? No. And I I mean, it is a movie that uh friends of mine had friends of mine and uh, one of my cousins had seen and really liked it. And so it's like, okay, that got me more and more interested, but it wasn't necessarily be, because of the fact that I was still sort of in that mindset of well, if I can't necessarily get a family member to see it, I'm probably not going to see it. But by the end of the summer, it basically got to the point where it's like, I want to see this in theaters. I need to see it in theaters. I'm obsessed with the soundtrack at this point. Right. And I just had to go see it. And I actually went to go see it before marching man practice. When I did that, I couldn't get the images that Proyas had put on screen out of my head i couldn't get the soundtrack and the way it worked in the movie out of my head by this point i was a soundtrack fan i was huge mm-hmm. in the soundtracks you know i never really there wasn't anything like this one before for me and you know again we'll talk about it again we'll talk about it more and it's a fascinating soundtrack and you're just captivated by Brian Lee's performance. You really are. And that's one of the things that keeps this movie going because it is, it is a very simple story, but yeah. And, and like you said, no, I was not familiar with the James O'Barr graphic novel. I did own it. I did buy it not far after I really started to get into the movie. And so I, I've read it since and I love it. I've, and I think it's fascinating to see the differences in what they kept in the graphic novel versus what they took out of the graphic novel. That was one of the first times where it's like I really started to notice how adaptation works. 
Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'd read That's a couple of other books. I I don't remember why. I think I read for class. I read uh, Michael Crichton's Congo for a reading assignment English class the next year, and I got I loved it. I thought it was a terrific book. So I was naturally really looking forward to the movie. And then when the movie came out, it's like I enjoyed it, but the things that they left out that really captivated me with the book really frustrated the hell out of me. Uh, it's been a while since I've read both the book and yeah. the movie, but yeah, it's. I remember that movie, which I think I've saw probably at least the late nineties at the most recent. <laughs> it was very, it was very schlocky. It was more yeah. of that kind of movie, and uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting for the crow that that you mentioned not only the visuals, but the music. Cause I, I actually uh, own the Blu-ray. So I, I need to check out that commentary and I have the score. You're talking about the soundtrack. I, I love the score. I think Graham Revel's uh, music is beautiful. Yes. And, and, and not only that features, you know, a lot of guitar riffs, which is obviously an extension on Eric mm-hmm. Draven being a musician and all that. Like it, it, everything thematically sort of fits together, which I think is music is, really integral to this story and i think it's really cool how proyas captures that yeah and uh yeah and revels revels scores just tremendous and yeah i mean it was the song soundtrack naturally that i bought from the time the movie was released to the time i finally saw but i definitely made a point of picking up the score as well because i was very much into film music i was very much into film scores the thing about Revel's score that captivated me so much in the movie is that it was not like anything I'd ever heard before. It didn't sound like John Williams. It didn't sound like Jerry Goldsmith. It didn't sound like Michael Kamen or even like Danny Elfman or some of these other composers. It wasn't as conventionally orchestral as you're used to in film. And that was another thing that just completely shaped my entire idea of what film music t- could do because of the fact that it it just sounded at the time like nothing I had ever heard before. And one of the things that I love about the soundtrack here in in this is that, you know, the there was always going to be the the song soundtrack I I love because of the fact that it really gives you a good idea of what hard rock and alternative rock in the nineteen nine in the mid nineteen nineties sound like, but I love that those songs work like score. Like you, I can't think of yeah. the scene of when Eric Draven becomes the. Cr- really does visually become the crow without thinking of that cure song or the song or when he's going to meet up with Tintin and fight Tintin and you hear the Nine Inch Nails cover or the, I think it's a medicine and then my life with the throw kill call who appear both appear on screen. And just the way that he, I'm fascinated by the way filmmakers use music in the film and uh, if if you if you're a fan of the if you're a fan of listening to people talk about film music, I will make a plug to the uh, Untold Cinema Gals podcast. I was on there earlier this year, and we were talking about our favorite soundtracks, and this one naturally came up because of the fact that this is my favorite soundtrack of all time. 
But one of the things I loved in that discussion was we had such a wide variety of soundtracks to, and we were able to talk about using pre-existing music to score scene or songs as score or very minimal score or not using music at all. And just all of the, and using as source music and for an on-screen source. And that's one of the things that is in all of my ideas for how, a lot of my ideas for how great a filmmaker can make that be, it come from the crow and the way Proyas uses the music in there. It's like sometimes it's scoring a scene. Sometimes it's on screen. Sometimes it's something that plays on a record player, but all matters. And that includes Rebel score. And it's just wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, it's it, the, the it's it makes sense that we highlighted already kind of the visuals somewhat and the music, because those are really, I think, you know, Proyas sometimes doesn't get enough acknowledgement for the the music in his movies but specifically in this one i think it really mm-hmm. probably made uh graham revel's career was this was about huge i feel like a huge big big breakthrough score for yeah. him i actually on my other show franchise detours we're covering the child's play movies right now mm-hmm. and we he did the score to the second one and i made a note i think on that episode of how strong the music is and i was like of course graham revel yeah. the guy from the crow we all know we all know how he does it so uh, it's, you know, I think that that that's kind of a testament to how like the early 90s, he was really putting in the work. I'm looking at his his discography and he was really like powering through them. Yeah. In the 1990s, starting with starting with 1990s, some spontaneous combustion and then Child's Play 2. And then it's just like a laundry list like of, of that decade of just him doing so much work, including Bride of Chucky, another movie from the Child's Play franchise. <laughs> so. He's he he lives in that horror space, I think, really well. And what's cool about this movie is the way that it marries sort of, you know, horror iconography and comic book movies and kind of super kind of a, not a superhero movie per se, but he's definitely a, a hero in the same vein of it makes me think of something like Sam Raimi's Dark Man, where it's like mm-hmm. a comic book style story being presented, but it's really more driven by revenge. And it has this this uh, character who looks like he stepped out of a horror movie. And I, I, is that a connection that, that you've ever made or, or, you know, what is your, your thoughts on the crow's <clears throat> intersection between kind of comic books, horror, and, uh, and packaging that all together in, in this revenge thriller? Oh, I think it, I think you can definitely make the case for this being a horror movie as well as an action movie, as well as a comic book movie superhero movie and yeah i mean i the the genre splicing is there for it because i mean and it could and the thing is it could have been even darker if you're familiar with if you're familiar with james obar's graphic novel you know one of the key characters in the graphic novel that is not in the movie is the skull cowboy who basically sort of acts as a guide for eric draven through his resurrection and he was originally going to be part of the movie but i think one of the reasons that um they did away with it was because of the fact that it just uh like the the way that they were uh doing the character design it just 
for some reason just wasn't quite gelling. And I mean, nowadays you would probably do that with motion perform motion capture, but that wasn't a thing in the early nineties. Although, I mean, this film does actually do some, this, this film does actually do some relatively groundbreaking, some of some relatively early versions of a facial, facial replacement. Cause yeah, when after Branley, because pa- after Branley passed away, they had, they still had a little bit of a shooting still. And, but thankfully none of the big scenes were uh, done. So his, his role was essentially done, but they still needed basically what you would shoot with second unit footage. And so his stunt man did some of the scenes, like the walking, some of the walking scenes, some, I, I think he did the scene in the mirror or he might've done one part of the scene in the mirror and you can kind of, and so they basically had to digitally you put Brandon's face on the stunt, the stunt guy. And it's, it's, you know, it, it looks fine. I mean, it's obviously not as polished as we try to get nowadays and certainly not as polished as like when they did the same thing with Paul Walker in Furious 7. But that is one of those things where it's like the crow. And yeah, I mean, Price really doesn't. I think part of it is because of the fact that his career since The Crow has been relatively hit or miss, both critically and commercially. But I, I, I still consider him one of my favorite filmmakers, and I, I will, I, I treat every film of his like an event. And if, if I, and it's a shame if there's a, a project of his like I was. I was really fascinated by his idea, the idea of him doing like an action sort of version of Paradise Lost a few years mm-hmm. ago. And that basically went to the wayside. And he he's also had like adaptations of Mask of the Red Death he wanted to do. I don't I think he had a Bride of Frankenstein they wanted to do as well. But that it, it was again, it was in that 90s era where it's like that type of horror just was not really working but yeah i mean even you know and we we can talk about his we can talk about his films later but at the i going back to revel i will say it's like if you i finally watched vim vendors until the end of the world last year which mm. the and the four hour version and uh, revel did the score on it and that's another great example of his music just feeling very in sync with a song soundtrack that gets a lot of notoriety, but his score works very well with that as well, with that, the songs that are in there. And I will give a plug to his work on the Crow Save Angels as well, which is a frustrating movie for a lot of reasons. (laughs) But at the same time, I, I think it, it's, it's got a fantastic selling soundtrack and Revel does a terrific job with the score on that one as well. Yeah. We, we hit on a few things there that I wanted to circle back to. So first of all, Brandon Lee's obviously, you know, tragically died on, on set, the presumably changed the rules for how guns are, are handled on set and, yes. and all of that changed the way that, that those kinds of scenes were shot. And, you know, needed this film needed to be completed, as you said, after his death posthumously using 
I guess, what we had of face replacement at the time. And it's so funny you mentioned Furious 7 because I completely was thinking about that, especially at the end when Shelly comes to essentially bring him home and it yeah. has that sort of double meaning kind of, uh, it, it kind of, you know, transcends the story of the movie and crosses over into the, the real life kind of tribute to the actor in the way that Furious Seven's Paul Walker driving off into the sunset does. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I a hundred percent made that connection as well. How much do you think uh, for you personally, and also for the legacy of this movie, how much do you think it's been affected by Lee's death? You know, you hear things all the time of, Oh, Heath Ledger wouldn't have gotten that Oscar for the dark Knight if he hadn't passed away, you know, do before it came out kind of thing. How much do you think that has, has affected the way people look at this movie and the way you specifically regard it? I mean, I think, well, with the, I will say with the, with the ledger thing, I, I can certainly see both sides. I definitely, I mean, I would have, I would have given him the Oscar even if he had lived when the movie came out. But at the same time, I, because of the fact that comic book movies at the time were like not really above the, you know, above the line Oscar nominees for like acting and such, I, I think it, I think it probably still would have happened for him just because he had such momentum at that point in his career. He had already been nominated for Brokeback Mountain. And, you know, there was probably a feeling like it's it's about time we give him this because it's a tremendous performance. As far as The Crow, I think if 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 you know the story of The Crow, if you know the story of what happened to Brandon Lee, I think the first time you watch it, it's impossible not to think about that. And it's impossible not to read a lot of what you may be think feeling in the movie as well. I mean, as, as sort of residual sadness for what happened to brain. The more you watch it though, and certainly the more I watch it, I, that, that initial feeling goes away. And yes, there's still sadness for what happened because I, you know, I, after this, I actually did go back and, watch like Branley's other films at this point up until right. the crow. And yeah. you could tell that even if I'm not a huge fan of some of them, you could tell that the charisma was there for him to break out after this movie. And I seriously do think he probably would have. It's, it is, I, I think the morbid curiosity did probably, I, I think morbid curiosity in a case like this does drive a lot of the initial box office. But the reason a movie like The Crow Endures is not just because of what happened to Brandon Lee. The reason it endures is because people just connect to the story. And you're you're absolutely right as far as some of the scenes, like when Shelley comes to take him at the end. And the the scene one of the scenes that I was I, I've always I've always thought was kind of poignant, but it really kind of hit me this time was when, you know, Sarah Sarah tells him they're at the they're at the grave. You're gonna say I shouldn't be in a cemetery in the middle of the night, right? Safest place in the world to be. It's because everybody's dead. I knew you'd come here. It's really late, Sarah. You didn't say goodbye. You're just gonna have to forgive me for that. And you're never coming back. Mm -hmm. 
And that's one of those moments where he wasn't able to say goodbye to the people he loved. And it, it makes it does give you a tinge of melancholy. I will say, though, I do know that they did rework a lot of the movie after Branley passed away. And I think they did. They did increase some of the relationships between Sarah and Albright, I think, got beefed up a bit. And just Sarah's Sarah's relationship or Sarah's character arc in general and the voiceover, I think, probably will have been will have been something that happened after the movie, after Branley passed away. And so the movie was definitely informed by that as they were finishing it up. But I think the reason indoors has ultimately doesn't have anything to do with Brand Lee's passing has everything to do with the movie that we ended up getting. There's a lot. I mean, yeah, if it had just been that and there wasn't so much other talent on display in the movie, then you'd be like, oh, people just remember it. it's a novelty. Mm-hmm. Because Brandon Lee, yeah, because he died during filming and all that stuff. And like you said, he'd only he'd only been in four movies, it looks like, before this. The most well-known of was probably, uh, I don't know, I remember I remember hearing about Rapid Fire, but that's, that's about it. Showdown in Little Tokyo and uh, Laser Mission, Legacy of Rage, not movies that have, have made this kind of impact. But you no. said earlier in the show that he has the charisma on screen in this movie, and he absolutely does. Like, you can't yeah. just write that off with like, oh, well, we're all like, you know, it's, you know, people like to speculate all the time, like, well, would Tupac be the, the legend that he is if he had lived to be, you know, <laughs> middle-aged and stuff? I mean, I don't know. Maybe. Probably. It was there. You can only judge based on the body of work you have. I Well, I mean, you know, I, I will simply say, I think Tupac, Tupac probably would have been even more of a legend at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and the thing is, it's like you think about River Phoenix. I mean, you look yeah, at Phoenix, now, Grand. Yeah. I mean, he didn't he didn't I don't think he died in the middle of a making of film. But I mean, there's a lot of people and I agree with them who think that if River Phoenix doesn't die, Leonardo DiCaprio is not the big star that we know him as today. Mm. I think his yeah. career, I think his career is not, I mean, he, he still have had a really good career because you could tell that he was on that trajectory, but I do think River Phoenix will have had a lot of the same opportunities for some of the roles that he got. And it will have really changed the trajectory of DiCaprio's career. But the fact is, it's like you look at River Phoenix's, movies and i think it's the same now you know we're we're 30 almost 30 years removed from brand lee passing away and we're almost 30 years removed from river phoenix passing away and you look at their films now you look at their best films now and all you think is sadness you you don't think oh well it's like you know this this movie isn't necessarily as good as we remember no they you could tell that the talent was there yeah. Yeah. And I, I love what you said earlier about how how the crow was really in, kind of informed by by Lee's passing on set and that it's 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 impossible. You can't really ask what if, you know, what what a what if scenario of what this movie would look like if that hadn't happened, because it does feel so baked into the movie and the way it's presented mm-hmm. and the it, it only adds to the emotion and the poignancy 
of the of the themes about you know how we get that last line of if the people we love are stolen from us the way to have them live on is to never stop loving them buildings burn people die but real love is forever yeah. that feels like as much as a, a much of a tribute to lee as it does kind of the thesis statement of the movie yeah no absolutely and uh, you know one of the one of the things that i noticed this particular today in rewatching the movie that I never really thought before is, you know, Shelley's line to Albrecht at the very beginning when they're taking her into the hospital and he's lied to her about Eric being all right. And she says, tell him to take care of Sarah. And it occurred to me today that as much as Eric's, mission is about gang revenge against the people who killed Shelley. One of the most important things for him in the movie is making sure that Sarah is all right. And that is something that for some reason, I've seen this dozens of times, it just never connected with me that he's not only doing what he's doing for for Shelley, He's also really he's also really fulfilling her dying wish that Sarah is okay, and that's where the beefing up of her performance and Rochelle Davis is wonderful in this movie. She yeah, she is really good as sort of a street urchin kid, but somebody who's much older than their much older in their soul than their age would make you think. And one of the thing and another thing that really connected with me this time around is that, I mean, they don't say that the movie is set in Detroit, even though T-Bird calls his gang a bunch of Motor City motherfuckers at one mm-hmm. point. So it's very clearly Detroit. Plus, that's where James O'Barr was from. And that's obviously what he was going with in the comic. And that's obviously the set design where they were thinking. But it's like that this movie is so bleak when it comes to society. Like there's no real hope in this story. And I mean, it's you can tell it just by that opening image of this city on fire on Devil's Night. It's like this is an apocalyptic. This is basically hell on Earth. And so. Somebody like Sarah, you can kind of tell she's going to be struggling. And I mean, she's how is she going to get out of this? How is she going to get out of this life? How is she going to be able to really have any hope for a life beyond what she's doing? And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about this movie. And you feel it in Branley's performance where he he's he's not just he's this this violence is not just about it it's not just about revenge it's about making sure that sarah has a potential for a better life whether it's her him talking some sense to into his mother whether it's him making sure that top dollar doesn't kill her and just in general but also doing what he can to remove the 
violence that has just run rampant over this city. And that's one of the things that I, those are some of the things that I noticed today for some reason just never really hit me. But thinking about it in Proyas's larger career, I think one of the things that Proyas does so interestingly in most of his movies, I will admit, I'm very curious to see how this plays out in Gods of Egypt because I haven't seen that in a few years. But in Dark City, in Knowing, in iRobot, and even in Garage Days, which is a wonderful musical comedy they did in between uh, Dark City and iRobot. One of the things that I think is so interesting about Proyas, I think the thing, one of the things that connects me I, that really connects with me about his work is that he looks at the real, he looks at the world and he looks at the real, the worlds he creates on screen and he tweaks them in one specific way that really doesn't, that really is what the main character is going to be working through for the rest of the movie, whether it's Eric Draven gang revenge on his his death and especially the death of his fiance and fulfilling her her wishes for sarah in dark city it's a uh, murdoch realizing what is going on in this city and working through how this is happening and then eventually having other people who can help him to to realize that potential in him. In iRobot, it's the idea that a robot has has violated the three laws. And in knowing it's this piece of paper that Nicolas Cage gets that might be more revelatory of the world around him than you expect. And there's always like one thing in, in each movie that really kind of just sets the story in motion and you're basically just following the way that the uh, the story will play out and how the main character goes through it. I think, is it in all three of those movies too? I think it's, isn't it a murder that sets those off? I believe. And, and certainly in, in iRobot and in this one, I, I forget. It's been a couple of years since I've seen Dark City, which we've covered on the previous version of this pod- <laughs> podcast, and which is a wild movie in and of itself. But yes, I, I think what makes this movie we talked about how it's it's a revenge thriller it's a comic book movie it's got horror elements at play but i think thematically what really clicked for me on this is i don't know maybe the third third or fourth time i've watched it for this podcast mm-hmm. uh is that eric draven comes down yes to you know to punish the people that that, that tortured and killed shelly and killed him and to protect sarah and, you know, that in and of itself is the big selling point. It's, you know, it's audiences love. It's like super satisfying to watch good people do bad things to bad people. Yeah. That's like a basic Hollywood kind of formula all the way back to like Death Wish and way beyond that. But he brings hope to this world. He brings, yeah. he, it, it, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Batman influence as well. Albrecht mm-hmm. is kind of his Gordon Gotham City, yeah. AKA this, you know, the, the Detroit is overrun with crime. And it's how do you bring hope to people who who have none in the face of grief, kind of the light into dark and all that stuff. So it is a bleak 
world, but it's also, I think, ultimately a hopeful movie. Is that something that that you connected to upon your initial watch so many years ago, or is that something that's you've really come to appreciate over time? Oh no, that's very recent. That's a, that's a very recent revelation to me. And uh, yeah, I mean, and you you mentioned the the Batman movies, and yes, I and when I was talking about that, I'd never seen a movie like this before. It's like I would even kind of include the Bur- I'd seen the Burton Batman movies, but mm-hmm. at the same time, you had names that you had names and faces that you recognize in the cast. You had people behind the scenes and playing characters that you would seen before and we're familiar with and it's still very much a, those are still even batman returns they're still very much hollywood move the thing that the thing that i i think is so interesting i think it, i was re-listening to the junk food cinema episode they did on the crow and one of the things that's great that they bring up is that essentially eric draven is a slasher in this movie he he is yeah, essentially actually. a slasher villain in in this movie, but he's basically killing bad guys. And so, I mean, it calling him it's weird trying to, you know, yes, of course he's a hero of the movie, but right. at the same time it's like what he's doing to these people is pretty horrific. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, at the same time if you think about but if you're looking at it through the morality of this world that the crow exists in of course he's the hero because of the fact that he's doing he 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 has you know as, as loki would say he has glorious purpose he, he <laughs> yeah. has righteous purpose he has righteous anger on his side and i i think that's yeah so it's it's and death wish makes a lot of sense i mean i i've heard very mixed things about the Bronson movies and, but yeah, I mean, you look at, you, you look at James Wan's death sentence, which is based on a book in that franchise in that series. And, you know, there's, there's certainly something to go with. I mean, and he's certainly not, you know, it, you could almost say that, you know, Eric Draven is sort of an early prototype of like jigsaw or something like that. I think, though, but they're going yeah. for different things too. For sure, for sure. Well, the, I, I make the Batman comparison in, in, mostly because there is a a disillusioned cop who's on his side. Oh yeah, they make the yeah. they make the point about. <laughs> I mean, obviously, the Dark Knight movies were much later, but those movies uh, also have the, the you know Eric shows up and disappears and Albrecht yeah. is is like, yeah, he does that a lot. And, and also they refer to him as a vigilante. There's that whole sequence where the cops are like shooting him, you know, yeah. uh, they're chasing him around. And, and to your point about the cast, I think the most recognizable face in this is Ernie Hudson from Ghostbusters at this point. Like when you go to see this, especially as a, as a, yeah. as a kid, you don't really recognize John Polito or Michael <laughs> Wincott or any of these people. We you see Winston I, from Ghostbusters. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the only reason I recognize Winca is because of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I think that's the only reason I will have recognized him. But no, you're right. Like, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have known John Polito from anybody in this movie. But it's funny because of it was funny watching watching this movie. And I I I will say I you know it. I don't think they will have done it, but I give them all the credit in the world for not making easy joke of. Ernie Hudson telling Eric when he's in his apartment 
It's like, are you some kind of of a ghost in making a Ghostbuster no reference? Ghost. Yeah, it's like I ain't afraid of no ghosts, Eric. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I'm I'm glad that they didn't do something like that. But no, I mean Ernie Hudson. Yeah, I mean Ernie Hudson obviously will have been the most recognizable name as far as general audiences. But yeah, I mean now coming out of the crowds, like. Now that I've gone back and seen like Miller's Crossing and other Coen Brothers movies, so I've seen right. I've seen John Polito and stuff. Michael Massey was in Seven like the very next year in a very small role, so it's like, oh hey, I recognize him. And Tony Todd, obviously, Candyman, Final Destination, you start to recognize him. And obviously, Winka, it's like is if if his face is not memorable enough his voice certainly is for sure absolutely <laughs> absolutely i think i want to double check this i think like the first time i really took note of him because i didn't see this when i was 10 because i probably wasn't allowed i'm assuming or i was like that looks like a horror movie i'm scared of that never mind um, <laughs> so i didn't see this until i don't know several years later i think i really noticed michael wincott in metro the eddie murphy action comedy from 1997 that no one else remembers oh, it just goes wow. to show you how everyone <laughs> how everyone's experience and when they discover these character actors is completely different yeah. that's what i first saw him and then i saw this much you know years later i was like oh hey the guy from metro <laughs> it's really depressing but yes it's what a great ensemble cast in this mm-hmm. one too as you were saying with michael massey tony todd like all these kind of titans of again leading into the the horror genre, like, like these actors that are really well known in that space. And, and Michael Wincott is, it lends such a, an interesting, unique energy to this character. Cause it's quite, quite honest. I mean, all these gang members are really obnoxious. Like I find them the most yeah. off putting part of the movie, <laughs> which is the idea, of course. Yeah. But the two of them with the fired up, fired up, I was like, Oh, please. What is your, you're kind of watching it then and now your read on the dynamic within the the sort of criminal underworld you got michael wincott and bay ling ripping out eyeballs and and yeah you know, just i guess having <laughs> sex and and that's kind of their thing and also devil's night to me watching it this time it, it, i feel like somebody saw this as a kid and then grew up and decided to make the purge because that right. felt very yeah very in line with sort of that franchise mm-hmm that's actually a good point. I didn't even think about that with a uh, purge comparison. The the villain di- dynamics are interesting because in the graphic novel, Top Dollar is part of T-Bird's crew. He's not the top person. And you don't even get Bei Ling and T- Tony Todd characters in the graphic novel. It's, it's fairly straightforward that T-Bird is the top of the gang in the uh, graphic novel. And here, I think it's kind of interesting because of the fact that, you know, you have the sort of smaller group that ultimately works for Top Dollar. And then he's got his own sort of trio, his, his own trio of people at the top. And I, it's, it's really fascinating that the idea that he's basically, he, he's basically the CEO of a crime. He's basically the mob boss of a crime organization whose sole purpose is to basically burn down Detroit every year. And, you know, like you said, the purge. And it's it's that's really a weird, fascinating idea. But I, I will say the film, the film pulls it off. 
I, I agree with you. Like the characters, we, we didn't mention as far as the character actors that David Patrick Kelly, who plays T-Bird, was in The Warriors. And he's also been the John, and at least the first John Wick. So he's he's been around as a pretty well-known character actor. T-Bird is really like the only one that's kind of tolerable because he seems very much like the smartest of the four Skank, right. I really wish had been like the first person. The idea that he, <laughs> he's the last one of that group that somehow survives is beyond me. One of the interesting things about this is that as far as like really brutal physical violence, I think the closest that we see to like really hard violence in the movie, I think is near the end with Micah and Top Dollar. You know, and it's funny because this movie obviously had issues with the censors, could have gotten an NC-17. And partially, I think a lot of that is because of the fact that it's a it's a darker movie in general, but also it's all, it was also an independent film. So uh, it and it's wild to me that this was originally going to be a Paramount release. They, they were originally going to be the studio behind it, but then when Brian Lee died... They let go of the film and then Miramax Dimension started picked it up. And so it's it's really kind of it it's really always kind of interesting to, and hilarious to me that this was at one point a Paramount film. Yeah, well, I don't I don't I don't think that would happen. <laughs> yeah, no, no wonder that didn't no. happen. It, it's and to your point, it, it is a lot of it is atmosphere and mood and tension there isn't a lot of on-screen violence like if we you know we mentioned we're comparing this a lot to the horror genre and there's a lot of visuals and obviously Proyas is sort of distinct visual style the red and and for the use of the flashbacks mm -hmm. a lot of shadows and and that kind of things so makes it very moody but there isn't, you know, I think at one point he wanted to make it black and white or at least sections of it. Yes. And, and the people, the producers or, or whatever, we were like, <laughs> yeah, no, we're not doing that. And he's like, all right, well, I'll just really overwhelm the screen with red when it's those flashbacks, you know, because mm -hmm. so much of the story focuses on trauma. And as, as I was saying earlier, grief. And I think that it's you see that <laughs> and it seems like throughout his quest, that Eric doesn't even like it. I read it and tell me you've seen this film way more than I have. He, it doesn't seem like he remembers his life like all at once. It sort of comes to him in flashes throughout, you know, throughout the, the movie where he has kind of, you know, these memories start flooding back sort of as, as his, as he's being continually reanimated, I guess. Well, and, and that's one of the, and before we get to that, because that is, that is a really interesting aspect of it. Going back to the violence right quick is, you know, you obviously see the aftermath of what he does to Funboy and Tintin, but thankfully mm -hmm. you don't see him doing it to those two characters because that would be horrific. But yeah, as far as the visual style, this was shot by the great Dario Swolski, they, who just got his first Oscar nomination for uh, News of the World. And uh, he he did a this, and he did this, and he also did Dark Save for Proyas. And then he also did the Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy as well for Gore Verbinski. And the thing is, it's like, I was reminded of that today that he originally wanted to do it in black and white because it was more in keeping of the graphic novel, which is in black and white. The thing is, it's like, I'm actually kind of glad that that didn't happen 
because of the fact that a like black and white is essentially like gray and white. I mean, there there are blacks that happen in it, but it's like black, gray, and white. It's not completely, you know, especially basically in a lot of cases. It's it's usually like there's a lot of gray in there too. But I love the way that they shot this, and basically what they did was they shot it on a sapia tone filter and basically what they did was in the processing of it they also they basically bleached out all of like the green all of the blue and one of the things that's really interesting about this movie if you really pay attention there's no blue like in even the blue of the well okay there's a little bit if you look at the blue on the uh, police cars this the lights it's it's really more white than anything or it's so far in the distance you can't really you can barely tell but yeah i mean i i love the fact that they went monochromatic with this with the exception of the red and oranges and the the exceptions of course are the times where we see things during the day and which is very sparing because this is a very you know dark movie so it's largely takes place at night but that's what makes the scenes that happen during the day stand out so much because of the fact that because of the the way the visuals look they're so monochromatic and i i love the look of this film i think as as i know Proyas and Branley really wanted to do it black and white, but I I think it will have, it will have made it more of a novelty than something that really feels like it's groundbreaking, which visually, which this really kind of does. Because I mean, yeah, it's obviously taking some stylistic cues from Blade Runner, from the Burton Batman movies, but it also feels completely detached from those as well. I think it's it's a situation where because they couldn't do it in black and white, they had to come up with a more creative solution. It's, you know, the thing that I always forget how I the phrase I always forget to quote properly on this podcast where it's like uh, necessity is the mother of invention. There you go. Yeah. I got it this time. Yeah. But yeah, they needed to come up with another way to capture that look to sort of differentiate. Uh, or distinguish the flashback sequences from what was happening. And I think to your point about the daytime scenes, of which there are few, one it, it makes that sequence with Sarah and her mom stand out even more so. Like when you were saying yeah. about scenes during the day, I was thinking to myself, wait, which are those? And then I was like, this one, <laughs> that's all I got, I think. And And it's ironic that that's also probably one of the more emotional and again going to what i was saying earlier more hopeful moments in the movie yes. where i loved that that scene where where he takes out fun boy and then kind of forces her darla to look in the mirror look mother is the name for god on the lips and hearts of all children do you understand morphine is bad for you daughter is out there on the streets waiting for you i thought that was such a brilliant like it's it's him trying to to see the light and in, and that's why in a way like he looks uh, he looks and at times sort of acts like 
uh, zombie-esque, as we were so saying, kind of his his life kind of coming to him in in spurts. And also, obviously, the white makeup he uses, the crow on his shoulder, all of that. So that kind of iconography. But he's almost, and this based on the title to the sequel, I don't know if this is something they get into more. He's almost more of an angelic figure at times. Is that yeah. something that, that really resonates with you? What do you think this movie says about faith and the afterlife and all I was talking about those mini reviews that I would get published and the paper one that I did get published was for the sixth sense and one of the things I mentioned in that review is that I feel like this is ultimately a movie like both movies I think are ultimately about people who pass away who have a need to communicate and you know that granted that's basically where the the similarities end in the movies but there's that idea that there's work left undone on earth you know there's a beautiful interview with inner brandley on one of the bonus features it's been on basically every every video every uh home release of the crow whether as its own thing whether it's as a bonus feature at the end of the VHS, whether it's part of a larger packet on the on on the uh, DVD or Blu-ray, and one of the things he says, and it's like because we don't know when we will die, I uh, we only we don't necessarily know just how many opportunities we will get in life. It it basically boils down to. Because we don't know when we will die, there are only a certain amount of times that we will be able to do anything out, anything in life. And he's got a line in the movie when he's talking about Albrecht that is absolutely beautiful. And it's like, it's it's funny because it's talking about, in, it's during a scene where they're talking about, Albrecht is telling him about the fact that he's in the middle of getting a divorce. Mm-hmm. And because Eric has found a picture of his wife. And Obviously, Eric and Shelley never had a chance to get married because they were they were killed on the day before they were going to get married. And uh, but he has this beautiful line and it was ad lib by Dre by Bran Lee, where he's like, you know, small things used to mean so much to Shelley. And it's like I always just looked at them as trivial. And it's like. Now that he's dead, he has this revelation where nothing is trivial and basically boils down to the fact that it's like, you know what? You you only have a certain amount of opportunities in your life. And I think that's the worldview that I think that is one of the more profound things that you get out of this movie. If you if you look past what we're seeing, which is like this action horror movie hybrid, there's really a sense of how best to live the life that we live. And, you know, I, I wish, you know, you, you brought the Crow Save Angels and this. I wish the Crow Save Angels did more of this. There are a lot of things I have issues with about the Crow Save Angels, namely the fact that they change the ending from something that will have been much more tragic, much more beautiful to basically the same type of ending that we get here. And that really frustrates the living daylights out of me because there's no reason a franchise, this franchise could, couldn't have been successful. 
in the right hands. And I don't know how much of this was in the right hands. Because, I mean, you know, it's like you can say a lot of things about the wine scenes now. You can say a lot of worse things about the wine scenes than how they treated their filmmakers. But one of the things that made the wine scenes the wine scenes and one of the things that's been well known over the years is how they treated their filmmakers, how they used to call for cuts that probably didn't necessarily need to be. And that's that's one of the reasons The Crusade of Angels is not the movie it probably could have been. Yeah, I wanted to bring that up, too, because when we were lining up this conversation, I haven't seen any of the the sequels or anything, but when we're bringing up this conversation, part of me was like, well, is this, is that movie more of a contender for my other show that I already mentioned franchise detours? (laughs) And then I'm like, yeah, but is it a franchise? Because they did this movie and then they did, you know, a TV series for like a year, I think. And three movies that I never saw because they they seemed like, like the story is pretty over by the end of this movie. The other three, at least the second one, based on what you tell me, that that sound, it sounds like my assumption was correct, seemed like basically a different guy dies, comes back to kill a bunch of bad guys, and then he's like, I'm done, pieces out. Which, I've, which I've actually, seen that already. So it's like, what but, is the, yeah, go ahead. I so, so, so basically, I, I had mixed feelings about the sequels. I actually, I, I think I only watched like an episode or two of the TV series, which star, Mark DeCascos, who has been a who's been something of a building action movie icon for the past few years. John Wick movies, yeah. In the John Wick movies. So he yeah. was playing Eric Draven in and the the Crow Stairway to Heaven, the TV series, was basically based on Eric Draven's story. And I'm like, how on earth are you going to make that 22 episodes? And I saw like an episode or two. I was not impressed. I I did. I am curious to kind of go back and rewatch and watch in its entirety if I can find it because I I kind of want to see what they did over the course of a season with that because I can't imagine it working for twenty two episodes. the The thing is, it's like you know, it's funny. The Crusade of Angels, I. Did I necessarily think there needed to be a sequel to The Crow? No. Does that mean I wasn't I wasn't highly anticipating the sequel? Also, no. I was incredibly anticipating <laughs> the sequel. And, you know, it, it's funny because it's one of those movies where it's like, what? And granted, I was sufficiently hyped as a Star Wars fan for the Fan Mess, but The Crow Save Angels was kind of my dry run for the Fan Menace. I was that fascinated by that coming out and i got the novelization i got like the you know they used to do magazines about specific films where it's like they would basically go through like every single aspect of the movie and you know i i got that i got you know and i got the novelization so and one of the things that they did in that in addition to leading up to it is they actually had like three different Crow comics come out. And it was the same basic idea that, like you said, it's like person dies, person comes back to avenge, you know, their death and the death of their loved ones and stuff like that. There's an interesting, if you look at those mini comics and they were all just three episodes or three issues, 
you can see that there's an interesting way to do that concept as an ongoing franchise. And basically the crows just bring back different people each time. And it's the same crow. And it was actually the same crow, I think in each of the sequels, but, or the same Raven that played the crow in the same sequel in the sequels. Mm. So there's an interesting way. And one of the things that they tried to do with city of angels is make it to give a connection to the original crow as they had the character of Sarah come back this time. She's played by Mia Kirshner, who was in Amagoyan's exotica. And it's, it's just one of those things where it's like, and they also got Iggy pop who was one of James O'Barr's inspirations for the character of Eric, he drew on the page to play one of the uh, villains in the Crow Save Angels. And there's a really good cast in the Crow Save Angels. They're, they're actually decent casts in all four of the movies, but like the Crow Save Angels is disappointing because of the fact that it basically reverts to doing the same thing, even though mm-hmm. there was this other idea that was, there's this other idea for an, ending that was more interesting and was kind of in keeping with one of Obar's original concepts for the crow that is in the graphic novel where the idea is the idea for the crow initially by Obar that the the original movie doesn't really deal with and probably kind of talks about on the commentary is the idea and this is sort of where this skull cowboy comes into play where if you start to do things outside of the revenge, basically basically what initially should have, if they were going to do more of a direct adaptation of James O'Barr's movie, the way it would have worked is, you know, Eric Draven gets revenge for the pe- on the people who killed himself and Shelley and nothing else. If he tries to do something that affects somebody that's, living his powers his invincibility powers are diminished and there's actually some deleted footage where you sort of see that idea happen with in the fun boy scene there's an expanded fight where fun boy actually injures him now in the in the final film and part of the idea with the skull cowboy which i'd forgotten is the skull cowboy is essentially Somebody who came, the crow brought back, but he didn't complete his mission. So his Mm. punishment is to essentially help people along the way, help other people through their missions. And that's something I actually didn't realize or forgot until Proy's mentioned in the commentary. But part of the reason they got rid of that is because of the fact that they didn't that that would have been too much, you know, it's like trying to explain that would have been a little bit too complicated. And the they but they still rework it in there because if the crow gets killed or the crow gets injured, then his power diminishes. And you know, Micah explains that near the end. And mm-hmm. so they play with that there and they really lean into it in the Crow City of Angels as well. And it's really kind of an interesting there. The pieces are there for Crow Save Angels to be really good. And it's not. 
And a lot of it has to do with the way they did that ending. It's like it's set in Los Angeles, which is why it's called Save Angels. And it's set during the Day of the during the Day of the Dead ceremony. So it's kind of an interesting backdrop for it. But they just ended up chickening out essentially and going with the obvious ending, and it really hurt the film. As far as the other sequels, I actually do like Crow. The Crow Salvation, which is the third one, which has uh, Kirsten Dunst in in a role, and Eric Mabius is the Crow in it. And I'm trying to think of what else he was in, he he was in he was the football player in Cruel Intention. That's yeah. the only other major thing I've known him from. But he plays the Crow in Crow Salvation. I like that one because of the fact that it kind of is. It kind of takes takes a different perspective of sort of being a police procedural and sort of a mystery of how he died, and I I I really like that angle of it, and uh, it's it's and it's an example for me of how you could keep this as an ongoing series while not necessarily tying yourself to Eric Draven, right? And then the Crow that- Wicked Prayer, which is the last one, is just atrocious i i can't defend on any level i it, it's it's too terrible which went pretty much straight to video too at that yeah, point basically. Just like i don't know another one sure what's edward furlong doing let's let's throw that out there no I, and, and this is something that they have famously or infamously i guess hollywood's been trying to reboot for yeah. a while that last one wicked prayer was 2005 and like just a couple of years after that, they were like, yep, we're going to try and start over. And I, I think it's, it's, I mean, it's going to happen eventually. Everything's coming back for some reason. Masters of the Universe is coming back on Netflix. So I feel like it's, it's a matter of time before Netflix or, you know, HBO Max or somebody, I guess it would be HBO Max because they have the movie on there. So maybe they have first rights Although to actually, property or something. Well, I, I don't think the rights are owned by anybody right now. And I think that's one of the, I think that's part of the reason why it's been held up is because of rights issues, but it's also been a fact that like just the gestate gestation uh, process has taken so long that certain, like they had Jason Momoa in there mm-hmm. at one point, and then he dropped out a few years ago. And that was really the last thing I had heard about it. I, you know, and the thing is, it's like, do I want them to, do another version of the crow do i feel like they do i feel like i need to see another version of the crow no i don't really watch the sequels at all even salvation which i like but at the same time if you wanted to do a new version but make it more faithful to the graphic novel i think you could do that and do it successfully you just have the right have to have the right screenwriter director and lead actor so i think it's possible it'd be interesting to see somebody tackle the graphic novel directly but yeah i mean if you're just going to basically remake the Fran lee film over i don't want it i would i would be i would be more interested in a crow reboot remake not remake but reboot or sequel series or something with this property, like you said, if Proyas was involved in some way, because I feel like yeah. he so put his stamp on on this movie, mm-hmm. uh, as we were saying, visually and and with the music and you know Brandon Lee's 
performance. Like it's, it's uh, sort of feels like timeless and also very, very nineties at the same time. And I mean that in a good way, like, yeah. like a time capsule of this period, especially being a comic book movie where now there's a comic book movie literally every month. Ugh. It's now we come to yeah. the point where when we were kids, you're like, oh, a Batman movie. Cool. Now we're like, OK, let's pause on the Batman movie. It's it's like like it's such a, yeah, exactly. a cross section. <laughs> it, it predates Blade, which I think has sent a similar tone. Stephen Norrington, who did that first Blade, was actually mm-hmm. supposed to do the reboot to this at one point. So you could see that's kind of a pretty even one to one comparison. Yes. Is there and also before I get to that, I wanted I really wanted to point out how, how cool it is that a lot of the the crow stuff the pov shot the shots of the crow the link between the two of them obviously it's linked to the undead but also they're essentially one like he can see through the eyes of the crow when sarah is in trouble yeah. and things like that uh and how that's sort of tied in with mythology so like the matrix it makes sense that you would have a, a, the experience with this film that i had with the matrix because it, there are like on its face it's a cool revenge thriller with this you know painted up vigilante in black leather but also uh, no. which is very visually stylistic but also there's all these all this like a commentary in there like about there's, there's themes about religion there's there's you know themes of finding hope and perseverance and how grief affects you you get that great sort of at the climax he essentially weaponizes 30 hours of pain directly into top yeah. dollar which i thought was a great kind of <laughs> way for the movie to to really put an exclamation point on the fact that he he is like it's suffering that the, the suffering that Eric and Shelley endured and how he's just now you know you can bring in themes yeah. you can bring in like karma to this and and mythology like they're like we're saying there's so much going on is there a moment in this movie that particularly resonates with you is there anything we haven't covered I guess that you wanted to to mention about the crow before we start winding well first of all I yeah, I mean, ideally, in a in an ideal world, this would be wonderful to have Proyas come back for, like, a reboot. But naturally, because of what happened with Brand Lee, I mean, I think he's perfectly comfortable uh, stepping aside in this franchise. And I, I completely understand it for all of the reasons, because of yeah. the fact that I know he was he was deeply affected by what happened. And, I mean, obvious, not, not just personally, because of the fact that I know he and... Uh, Brandley became good friends, but also professionally because of the fact that he he basically had to work himself up to uh, coming up to uh, finish the film. And it basically was Brandley's fiance's blessing that inspired him to uh, do that. So I, I completely understand why uh, Preuss would want to do his own thing. And honestly, I'm I'm glad about that. I'm I'm excited about Price not just doing the same type of thing he does in The Crow. As far as let's see, oh, there. As far as scenes, I I think the scene, the scene I mentioned earlier with Albrecht and in his apartment where Randley, where Eric Draven says that nothing is trivial. Is your wife? Yeah, we, uh, well, not anymore. We're getting a divorce. It's funny. Little things used to mean so much to Shelley. I used to think they were kind of trivial. Believe me, nothing is trivial. 
you shouldn't smoke these. They'll kill you. I think that's a beautiful moment. I I like the the scene where Sarah comes into the apartment and she's talking like he's there. And I think that was and if I if I read if I understood Croesus commentary correctly, that was probably one of the scenes that they did after Branley died. And I would never guess that necessarily, but it plays into the idea that they probably that they beef Sarah's character up. And I love when the when Eric's shadow comes in at the end of that after she says, I thought you cared. And he he goes, I do care. And they have that moment and the music by Revel Revel is just wonderful. That that theme has been you know, The Crow is my favorite soundtrack of all time, and I include the sound, song soundtrack as well as the score. I, I can't think of them separately because they both add something to this film. This, this is a movie that there are so many moments. I, I could go on and on about, you know, moments that I love in this movie. But uh, yeah, those are the ones in particular that stand out. I think it's telling that this is, you know, or at least was marketed as a like basically an action thriller type type of movie. And we, you know, we've talked more about these sort of quiet, beautiful, kind of poignant moments than anything else. I think that's what separates this from, you know, from a lot of these sort of revenge thrillers, like Death Sentence, which you mentioned earlier. That's a bleak movie. Like, yeah. geez. Yeah, Oof, that was rough. <laughs> I think I watched that late at night one time because I had it was a, a blank spot in my James Wan, you know, watching. And uh, wow, it's it's rough. That's a hard yeah, watch. It is for a lot of different reasons. But you know, before we start, before we we wrap up here, I wanted to have you. You said that this is obviously your favorite movie of all time. Proyas is among your favorite filmmakers. So I can you sell listeners who might be listening to this this episode on on this movie? Why would why should they check out The Crow if you know, if maybe they're assuming that it's that it's kind of just like, oh, it's just another action thriller revenge thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe they're just blinded by the fact, oh, that's just famous because Brandon Lee passed away during during the making of it, right. which is obviously what this movie is best <laughs> known for. And you add on to that the tragedy of, you know, what happened to his father, who he didn't even live as he didn't even live to be as old as his father was when he died yeah. at a very young age as well. So uh, shout out to the great Bruce Lee, of course, for that. Yes. But I, and I feels like it's funny that you said the nothing is trivial thing was an ad lib by Brandon Lee, because that feels like something Bruce Lee would say. Mm-hmm. You know, we've we've all these quotes of things that Bruce Lee yeah. has said that are very, you know, very sort of powerful and, you know, emotionally resonant. And I think that's a moment in that Brandon Lee was maybe tapping into his father's influence a little bit yeah. there. But yeah, so that kind of went on a tangent there. But tell listeners why they should check out this movie and if they have seen it, other films that they should check out. So I, I will confess this is actually number my second favorite movie. I did have a movie surpass it, but really I honestly look at them as 1A and 1B because this is this is a favor of mine for so many reasons. I think if you're if you're thinking that it's simply a revenge movie, if you're thinking of it simply as, you know, oh, it's only famous because Brian Lee passed away, I I I will counter the second part by saying, I uh, 
have when was the last time you heard about Terry Gilliam's The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus? Ooh, yeah. That was the movie Good that point. Heath Ledger was actually making when he passed away. And it is all for, but forgotten, which is a shame because it's actually, I think, one of Terry Gilliam's best films. Even though it's kind of hard to watch now because Johnny Depp was one of the people who helped who who helped finish the movie when Heath Ledger passed away. But at the same time, nobody really, you know, it's funny because the two of the most famous posthumous the two most famous posthumous Oscars are Peter Finch for Network and Heath Ledger for The Dark Knight. Neither of them died during fundamentally during the making of those movies. They mm-hmm. just happened to die before the movie came out. I think the thing that sells The Crow more than anything is I think the images it puts on the screen are unlike anything you've ever seen even if you're if what you've seen are batman movies blade runner even dark city which i mean was less successful than this if you think this is just a movie for goth people for fans of goth culture i would respectfully disagree because i was never into goth culture and this movie landed hard with me you know, if you're a fan of the Batman movies, I can see that this is right up your alley because it, the comparisons you made to Batman are very valid because it is vigilante violence, because it is about, you know, there's a certain degree of corruption in the there's a lot of corruption in the city that only he really seems to be able to take care of. It's hard to say what exactly how I would pitch this movie, except to say, if you appreciate movies with imagination, if you appreciate movies that have profound things to say about life and death, you know, I, I made the comparison to the sixth sense. It's like, they really do have a lot of things in common where it's like in, in terms of theme, I, I think they're saying very similar themes, just in very different ideas. So this would be an interesting one to look at. If you are interested in this movie and you want to see other movies, I would I would at least go back and watch Rapid Fire and Showdown Little Tokyo, two of Brandon Lee's other more well-known films. And I think he could have had a successful career. Certainly as an action star, but I think he could have been great in comedies. I think with the right filmmaker, he could have been really great in comedies. I think he would have been really terrific in action. But the sad thing is he probably will have just been pigeonholed like he was before the crow in action movies. As far as other films, dark say by Alex price is uh, obviously a, a great one. That's, that's another one that I absolutely love and waited to see. And I went opening day and Roger Ebert's commentary for Dark City is one of the reasons it was one of my first DVDs when I got into DVD. And he put in his great movies collection. As far as other movies that are sort of like it, it's hard to think of other movies that are quite like it. I will say, uh, I, I didn't mention it, but there was a video review of The Crow when it came out and on home video, and the reviewer mentioned that some of the scenes in of Eric Draven walking in the darkness kind of reminded him of Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker. And that reference to Tarkovsky got me immediately intrigued. 
to where I eventually found Stalker and I was absolutely transfixed, I would watch anything after this. It's like within reason, but at the same time, I was not afraid to watch movies that were unlike anything I had seen previously. And that was the big difference. That was the big sea change. And it's completely informed my movie watching ever since. It's a distillation, like we were saying, of so many di- different influences and genres, too. I think that's that it's easy to see how this was sort of the, you know, all of those different types of filmmaking and storytelling were kind of funneled through the crow. And then that was your fulcrum point for then exploding out back right around to all yeah. of those things that influenced this. And uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's it's hard to come up with similar movies, especially of since I was saying it was, it's so of its time in in a way mm-hmm. that I, the only one that I can think of, especially in the comic book space, that's even close would be Spawn, but that's not a good movie, really. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of a, a curio of the era to be like, hmm, they made a Spawn movie. What's that like? Oh, it's not good. <laughs> I, I I think I think when you said dark when you said Darkman earlier, I think that's a really good comparison yeah. too. I mean, it's, yeah. it predates the Crow, but I think you could definitely tell that Proyas was probably bouncing off of stuff that Raimi did in that movie when he made The Crow. Darkman would be another great one that I would throw into into the mix for people looking for more more energy like The Crow. But but yes, yeah, so thank you so much for coming on the show, Brian. This was a ton of fun. I'm so glad that I didn't really know when, you know, when you selected this movie that this was the formative movie for you. I, I love giving people the opportunity to especially tap into that. And like, this is the film that made me, you know, made me want to do this. Well, made me yeah. want to write reviews and pursue, you know, a a a, uh, a career talking and writing about movies. So I, I love that we were able to to give you the opportunity to do that. Yes. And thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to do that. And you can read my written work at www.sonic-cinema.com. Uh, you can listen to the Sonic Cinema podcast at YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, as well as plenty of others, but those are the main ones. And you can also check me out at uh, patreon.com backslash I try to do something uh, unique for those subscribers that is separate from what I do on the website, but still in the same kind of vein of sometimes doing deep dives into particular genres or filmmakers or just types of stories. And, you know, as well as just giving you early access to some reviews that I write, as well as early of, as well as brief write-ups on movies that I'm seeing for the first time that are older movies. So that's that's where you can find me online. And I'm also on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And then I also been doing live streaming on Twitch. And uh, you can it's just the Sonic Cinema movie chat on Twitch. Awesome. Yeah, I was about to ask social media. You got it. You got me covered. You beat me to it, Brian. But yeah, (laughs) everywhere. Basically, Brian, where are you? You're everywhere. And you're very you're very busy sharing your love of movies. and, And we love you for it. So. Thanks so much for coming on and and doing that with us. Appreciate it. And we'll definitely have you back at some point. Yeah, I would definitely love to. And it's like, yeah, I would, I would love to. Yeah. I mean, there, there are plenty of franchises I'd be fascinated to talk, talk with you about. Thank you for 
given me a chance to share my love of this movie that I love. And yeah, we will definitely do it again. Big thanks to Brian Scuttle from Sonic Cinema Podcast for coming on to discuss The Crow. I swear I did not know when we set this up that that was his big turning point movie, as I mentioned in the episode, like The Matrix was for me. So that was just a huge bonus. I'm even more honored to have uh, documented his thoughts so thoroughly on this film. I agree with him. It is a, it is a beautiful movie. Uh, surprisingly, you wouldn't expect this movie that has so much violence and so much uh, and so many horror influences to carry that kind of sentiment. But it is really a, a lovely, very spiritual film in a lot of ways. And I'm so grateful that Brian and I were able to dig into that and uncover it and hopefully get some people to give The Crow a, a watch or a rewatch after all these years. And now I want to know, what are your thoughts on The Crow? Do you want to see a reboot? Like like we mentioned on the episode, there's so much material with this in this mythos, in this premise. Uh, would, do we want to see a remake or a reboot or a revisiting of this in some way, shape, or form? Let me know. You can find me on Twitter at Crooked Table, the same handle on Instagram, and via email at robert at crookedtable.com. For now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. Stay crooked, everyone. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of a little KED.